Good news, good news, good news. Welcome to this Good News Friday edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh, and good to have you along, and happy St. Patty's Day to you, wherever you might be listening to uh, where we're doing this right now. Of course, there's a lot of fun things happening this weekend. Congratulations to everybody who won tickets to the St. Patty's Comedy Night out in Temecula, and uh, also for everyone who won tickets to see the Gaithers coming up tonight at uh, Lake Avenue Church in Pasadena, tomorrow night, Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, and Sunday night at uh, Dr. David Jeremiah's Church, Shadow Mountain in San Diego. We're uh, thrilled that we were able to give you the opportunity to win some tickets, and everybody who won from the Bottom Line Show, make sure you go. By the way, I believe, if I understand this correctly, that uh, Teresa Kim, our uh, creative director and our marketing assistant, and uh, Crystal's going to be there as well on Saturday night at Calvary Costa Mesa at the Gaither Show, and then on Sunday and uh, Shadow Mountain in San Diego. So um, I encourage you to stop by and say hi to them. They're wonderful. And if you, especially if you've called in and won prizes from the Bottom Line Show over the past uh, six, seven, eight months, uh, these are two women you'd love to meet. By the way, speaking of prizes, if you're a golfer, we have great prizes to give away this hour here on this Good News Friday edition of the Bottom Line Show. Oz Hillman's going to join me to talk about a devotional of his, and he brought lots of gifts too. So he's not Irish, but nonetheless. Um, interesting good news story to start things off with. And this is something that totalitarian leftists don't understand. And we have to be gracious. I mean, I, 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 I've gotten to the point where I, I have a feeling that I'm going to wind up kind of sounding like the antithesis of Matt Walsh. Um, <laughs> if you've ever listened to Matt Walsh or Ben Shapiro, there is absolutely, well, there's a little joy in Ben Shapiro's demeanor. And for those who listen to The Bottom Line in Southern California, Ben and I go head to head. He's been on KABC AM 790. We're on KBRT AM 740. Uh, he's on 3 to 5. I'm on 3 to 430. Um, we go head to head. And I noticed that when Ben's show started airing through, I think, Westwood One or whatever, who's carrying him now, um, on that frequency, that we had a lot of people who kind of bounce back and forth in and out. Um, Interestingly enough, you don't have the John and Ken phenomenon on KFI for the full length of the bottom line show. Now they're on from one to four on AM 640. The only reason I bring this up for our terrestrial listeners is these are people who we share audience with. I mean, we do the research and we know uh, if you're listening to KBRT in Southern California, there are other options for you to listen to and you might bounce around. People say, why would you talk about those other stations on your station? Well, the reality is God's going to do what God's going to do. And the people who are going to be drawn to listen to this program are going to listen. So I don't have to worry about what's happening in other markets, though I am aware of it, because, I mean, at the end of the day, if it's leading people to right thinking and, you know, that type of thing, I'm all for it. Now, Ben, of course, comes from a, a Jewish perspective. And so he and I would probably agree to disagree on, you know, his Bible, of course, is the Old Testament. And, you know, Jesus being the Messiah, but he does talk to people like John MacArthur and, you know, stuff like that. But it's interesting because there is a, a, a fair amount of reasonable, right-thinking people who occupy the airwaves. And I'm just talking Southern California. I mean, get into Denver and, uh, of course, John Rush at Rush to Reason on our sister station, KLZ there, does a good job of this as well. But one thing that we do, I, I think that we do a good job of here at the bottom line show taking nothing away from what matt wolf does with the daily wire and and what ben shapiro does with his uh, program I mean, he is the daily wire is they always seem so angry all the time i mean i get animated sometimes and yeah i have known <laughs> been known to go off on occasion but 
I mean, one of the hallmarks of the Christian faith for me is the joy of the Lord. And there are times when you have to look at the way the world handles things, even the most, you know, insipid, awful things. And you just have to take a step back and say, oh my goodness. I mean, uh, we're not laughing at this next story, but I, I want us collectively to be in a position where we can rejoice in the fact that God is good all the time, all the time God is good. And when we see people on the left doing things that don't make any logical sense at all, we can rejoice for the good news that uh, uh, the enemy has been defeated in those cases. But we could also take a step back and say, gosh, I wonder if these people who are part of the cultural elites, the you know the, the humanists and uh, uh, the atheists and people who don't believe there's any sort of God, but they don't see the inconsistency of their values. And I think, honestly, the biblical worldview that guides us as Christians is the most consistent worldview. And in all honesty, when people say, you Christians are so inconsistent, how can you be pro-life and you support the death penalty? And we can come back and say, well, look, I'll be, I'll, let, me, let me give you a couple of passages of scripture. Let's talk about it. Do you believe that the human being uh, is created in the womb? You know, or just, just kind of an accident of procreation or whatever. If you believe that the human being is created in the womb, my Bible informs me that God is the author of all life, but especially of human life, and he knits us together in the womb. Now, I also know that in the Old Testament, uh, God was very much eye for eye, tooth for tooth, and there were some very specific rules as to what happened to someone if they wound up killing somebody else. Was it an accident? You know, different degrees of murder and this, that, and the other thing. But it was not uncommon in the Old Testament, especially for people inside the church who messed up you know, to be... <laughs> If you, if you bring the wrong sacrifice, if you, you know, what about the guy, I was just reading about this, I, I want to say it was in uh, in Leviticus, who, um, the guy who's picking up sticks on the Sabbath, and God says to Moses, make sure he is stoned to death. I mean, the idea that somebody would pay for a capital crime with their life is not inconsistent with the idea that we fight to protect the unborn. If anything, we could make the argument in the other direction and say, why is it that you will just, pound yourself into the ground over people who, you know, that guy who shoots up 20 kids at an elementary school and it winds up being sentenced to die because he killed those 20 people and you'll chain yourself to the wall in their prayer vigils, et cetera, et cetera. But then when 65 million preborn children are murdered in the womb, you have absolutely no trouble saying, oh, I'm going to ban Walgreens because of, uh, they, they won't allow me to bring this pills in here. I mean, see, you can make the case in either direction. So it's interesting how the left, which pr prides itself on being so welcoming and inclusive and diverse and everything like that, is actually at the heartbeat of the cancel culture. And toward that end, you see laws like this that are really draconian and totalitarian in nature, like the one that was passed in New York. In New York, there was a uh, an organization called the Evergreen Association. Evergreen operates a network of pregnancy health centers called the Expectant Mother Care EMC Frontline. And according to New York law, basically, um, uh, New York law forbids employers to make decisions about employees based on, quote unquote, their reproductive health choices. In other words, if you participate in abortion, if you advocate for abortion or premarital sex, you can't use that as a basis for whether or not you're going to uh, you know, hire someone. 
Well, there's a problem with this. It's the boss bill of 2019. The pregnancy founder, the pregnancy center founder and the CEO of the network, Chris Slattery, had argued that the bill impeded the organization's First Amendment rights by creating, quote, a protected class based on how they would decide on reproductive health. That protected class then being people who support abortion. That protected class, you see where this is going then, what happens if somebody who is passionately pro-abortion wants to work at a pro-life pregnancy resource center? The New York law basically said, hey, if you're a pro-life pregnancy resource center, like a pre-born clinic, you have to hire people who support abortion. Now, what's interesting about this, and I'm only chuckling just because of the irony, what's interesting about this is if you go to an abortion clinic and you are a pro-life worker and you want to make sure that the women who come to that abortion clinic get the full-scale treatment with regard to what are all of your options. You have three of them, you know, in the United States, especially in states where abortion is legal. Option number one, congratulations, you're a mom. Option number two, carry the child to term and release the child for adoption. Option number three, it is legal to kill your child in the womb. But flip the script there. There's no way that the New York legislators or California legislators want to make sure that there's any option for the pro-life community to work at an abortion clinic and talk about door number three, which is adoption. But they sure as heck want to make sure that pro-abortion people can show up at pregnancy resource centers and they'll talk about abortion and, oh, wait a minute, the pregnancy resource center talks about it too. They don't recommend it, but they certainly don't withhold that information. At least a good pregnancy resource center would not. So basically, a lower court, January 2020, there was a civil suit brought by Evergreen saying, hey, we don't want to be in a situation where we have to you know, compromise our values. A lower court decided to dismiss the suit. The Second Circuit Court of Appeals in New York City, though, has reversed that decision. Circuit Judge Stephen Menashe stated in his ruling that the group's beliefs about, quote, the morality of abortion are its defining values. Forcing this organization to accept as members those who engage in or approve of the conduct that would cause the group uh, it currently identifies itself to cease to exist. Accordingly, the balancing interests favor the expressive association that opposes the conduct the state would protect against discrimination. Timothy Bells, a special counsel for the Thomas More Society, who's representing this organization, wrote in a statement, they hope the ruling, quote, will discourage any state legislature from enacting legislation that would violate an organization's First Amendment rights, including the right to work with those who share their values. Full stop. A great victory in the Second Circuit Court of Appeals for a pro-life organization that says we should not be forced to hire people who are passionately pro-abortion in our pregnancy resource center that is passionately pro-life. Common sense prevailing on the court level. Oh, by the way, the judge who wrote the majority opinion in the Second Circuit Court was appointed to his position and nominated and approved by the Senate by the 45th president of the United States. Uh, You can pull out your almanac and figure out who that was the most pro-life president in American history. Okay, let's take a quick break. And as we continue, I don't know why golf and St. Patrick's Day seem to go together for me, but Oz Hillman has a brand new book called Birdies, Bogeys, and Life Lessons from the Game of Golf. It's 52 Devotions. 
There's a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. And oh, by the way, we have three copies to give away today here at 800-227-5278. Oz Hillman joins me next as The Bottom Line continues. You can protect against market volatility without investing all your money into bonds. Wilson Financial has simply better alternatives. The last 12 months, there has been almost $1.7 trillion invested in investment-grade bonds. This move to safety locks up money for a long time of guaranteed low returns. Why? Market volatility. Well, my comment is why go with low earnings for a long time when you can get great earnings with a solid real estate-backed investment paying you 6% over the next three years. After three years, you can invest in another option, or you can do what most of our investors do and reinvest in another one of our new exclusive 6% accounts. This strategy gives you the best of both options without settling for many years of low returns. Our 3D Money 6% account pays you great interest while you're not subjecting yourself to market volatility. Call 800-696-9970, 800-696-9970, or visit kbrightradio.com slash Wilson Financial and ask about Dennis Wilson's exclusive real estate-backed 6% investment account. Wilson Financial Services, for simply better alternatives. Well, today on The Bottom Line, we're going to take a swing, <laughs> pun intended, at a topic of conversation that uh, is interesting to people who enjoy the game of golf, but maybe more beneficial for those of us who haven't really picked up a club and ever really done this before. If you've wondered what kind of life lessons you can actually learn from playing 18 holes on a round, uh, well, I encourage you to stay with us for the next half hour. Oz Hillman is with me today here on the program, and we're going to talk about a brand new devotional book of his called Birdies, Bogies, and Life Lessons from the Game of Golf. That's the focus of uh, this brand new devotional book that we've got a link for up at thebottomlineshow.com. Oz Hillman, welcome back to The Bottom Line Show. Brother, good to be with you. Oz Hillman is president of Marketplace Leaders, which is an organization whose purpose is to help men and women discover and fulfill God's complete purposes through their work and through their ministry as well. Um, a faith leader and speaker, author of more than 20 books, and uh, currently writes the daily email devotional called TGIF, which is Today God is First, which has over several hundred thousand daily subscribers worldwide. Uh, Oz, I, I realized that this... Oftentimes, it's a labor of love, you know, to talk about a game, a sport like this. I remember having conversations with Norm Wright years ago about hunting and fishing and things of that nature. But I didn't realize how serious the game of golf was for you and what a big role it played in your life until I got a hold of this book. <laughs> to, to, let's, let's talk about this because, I mean, there's, there's some father-son connection here. There's some college scholarship connection here. Kind of give us a 90-second overview of why golf is such a prominent feature in your life. Well, my dad started me playing golf when I was 11 years old, and uh, I caught on very quickly, and I was pretty good at sports as a young kid. My dad played golf, and I caddied for he and his partner uh, every Saturday, made five bucks a bag, so uh -huh. I had made 10 bucks a Saturday, thought I was rich. <laughs> and, you know, but I started playing at 11, by the time I was 14, I'd already had three hole-in-ones, and I'd broken 70 several oh my. times. And wow. I had the uh, course record of 66 by the time I was 16 years old. And so I was picking up the game very quickly, became a very prominent junior golfer, played in the U.S. Junior Amateur at uh, Brookline Country Club when I was 16, and uh, played with many what you would know today as tour players and now on the senior tour. And so I felt like I had the ability. And so I would end up going to 
school on a golf scholarship at the University of South Carolina, was recruited by several schools, uh, had uh, uh, was interviewed by Wake Forest University. A guy named Lanny Watkins was my host mm. that weekend. Wow. And uh, so I really had a desire early on to play professional golf, but it was after college and then moving to North Myrtle Beach in hopes of trying to raise money to uh, you know a backer, but I had not I had not progressed in my my golf to the point that I was a star, and so I was borderline in being able to attract the money, and so my lifelong goal uh, was not realized, and it it, it was that failure. And that disappointment that led me to Christ. Hmm. Interesting. Oz Hillman with me today here on The Bottom Line, talking about his new devotional called Birdies, Bogeys, and Life Lessons from the Game of Golf. There are 52 devotions in all, and we have a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Based on the time period that we're talking about, Oz, and and the way that the, the sport that for that literally propelled you. I mean, you want to talk about prodigious uh, acceleration here. An 11-year-old picks up clubs for the first time and has three holes in one by the time he's 14, gets a full-ride scholarship to play at a Division One school. I mean, it's really incredible. And uh, rubbing shoulders with Lanny Watkins probably didn't hurt at all. And yet to have this kind of tragedy, it really sounds very parallel, if I may, to the story of Pete Maravich and the fact that he had that tremendous success at LSU bounced around on the pros, finally got to that point where he's with the Celtics and decides to retire in the middle of the season. And then they go on to win the NBA championship as one shot at a ring. And he said that was Mm. the thing that brought him closer to Christ was the fact that the Mm -hmm. one goal that he had, you know, that NBA championship, or in your case, getting some PGA uh, championships and a couple of green jackets under your belt kind of led you in that direction. Mm. What was your family faith uh, story like up to that point? Yeah, I had four sisters, and my dad uh, was a uh, a Christ follower with my mom. Uh, they were somewhat nominal, although I would say that my dad actually started a church with uh, four other men oh, wow. uh, when I was a teenager. But um, and he was fairly vocal about his faith. But you know, I'm not sure about the intimacy aspect of his life. But he was certainly a good person. And he talked about Christ in his business life. But um, we had a tragedy happen when I was 14 where my dad was killed in an airplane crash. He was the pilot Mm -hmm. along with two other men, uh, the CEO and vice president of the company that he was president. And so that really changed everything in our family. And uh, but, you know, the club where I was growing up playing uh, they were gracious enough to give me a free membership because our finances tra- changed dramatically because the insurance didn't pay off um, from the accident. And so my mom had to go back to work. And hmm. so anyway, God's grace was there and we got through that time. But that was a, certainly a life changing moment. I I can only imagine. Uh, Oz Hillman, my guest today here on The Bottom Line. The brand new book is called Birdies, Bogeys, and Life Lessons from the Game of Golf. 52 devotions, and we've got a link for this up at thebottomlineshow.com. Before we get into the the nuts and bolts of the book, uh, talk about your faith journey. I mean, you mentioned that you had a kind of a 
career crisis by the time you finished the University of South Carolina and didn't find your way onto the PGA Tour. And I can imagine that as a, a young guy, you're missing your dad and your your whole existence you know, can get caught up in the performance of, I'm a good golfer. I can do this. I know that this is going to give me value. And now to get hit your mid-20s and realize there's nothing there, when did you, I mean, you mentioned kind of a nominal faith perhaps when you were younger. When did you really meet Jesus face-to-face for the first time? Well, because of the accident, my mom's faith really grew, and she had an encounter with the Lord when she was at the depth of her own experience there in the loss. She she deeply loved my dad, and uh, so she would uh, have some real hard moments. But the Lord spoke to her one evening and said, trust me, Lillian, and that allowed her to grow in her faith and trust God at a much deeper level. And she began sharing that with me. But I was a very hard-nosed young teenager with a one-track mind that all I wanted to do was play professional golf. Right. So I wasn't really open to her uh, her reaching out. But then when I left and I moved to North Myrtle Beach primarily to gamble and try to raise money, um, there was a pastor and his wife who – had actually been associate pastors of the church where I was growing up, and they moved to North Myrtle Beach. He took a, a church there, and it just so happened that the church was across the street from the golf course where I worked. <laughs> and uh, that's great. And and he uh, had stayed in touch with my mom, and I found out later they were kind of in uh, cahoots uh, with this strategy to reach this wayward son. Mm-hmm. And uh, so my mom's prayers and and this man, who was a very nice man, I always respected him, but uh, he began reaching out to me and just having, you know, lunch with me every now and then and and was just a friend. And, but he wasn't the kind of pastor that I had grown up knowing that was very legalistic and uh, do's and don'ts. And so he he was an anomaly for me because he was different. And so as I began to become more and more frustrated with my goal and really beginning to ask questions about purpose in life, I began kind of posing some of those questions to him. And there wasn't a question that I didn't believe in God. I did believe in God, but I certainly wasn't living for Christ and as I began to to question him about a real Christian faith, I'll never forget the question I asked him and the answer he gave me. I said, you know, what if I was a Christian? Would I have to give up gambling on the golf course and going out with women and drinking? Would I, would I have to stop that? And he gave me this amazing answer. He says, Oss, I, I can't answer that for you. But if you'll take the first step, God will show you and give you the desires that he wants you to have. Well, I wasn't ready for that answer. Mm. It was it didn't have any trace of legalism in it. <laughs> right. It just gave me a, a green light to pursue what we were talking about. And mm. so the more I pursued it, you know, the more I was getting drawn and then one day I visited his church and I saw a completely different spirit in the church where the people were welcoming, loving, non, uh, you know, non-performance. It was just an amazing 
difference where I sense the love of the people. And that's what drew me in. And then one night by myself, I walked out to the pier and, and invited Christ into my life. And mm. I was never the same since. I love it. Boy, what an inspiring story. Oz Hillman is my guest today here on The Bottom Line. His brand new book is called Birdies, Bogeys, and Life Lessons from the Game of Golf, 52 devotions that we have up at thebottomlineshow.com. We'll get into some of those inspiring stories on the other side of this break as The Bottom Line continues. Life insurance will never replace the person you love, but that money can help you get through life when it feels impossible. When your life insurance claim is denied while you're already dealing with so much, you need someone on your side. Stephanie Cover of Coverlaw used to work for the insurance companies. She challenges and understands the way insurance companies think. Hire Stephanie to file a life insurance appeal while everything is still fresh in your mind. Don't let the insurance company get away with greedy behavior while you're in mourning. Stephanie Cover will do everything in her power to get you the financial protection which was promised to you as a beneficiary of the policy. The money from the life insurance proceeds can supplement your income so you can support yourself throughout the process of bereavement. Save Stephanie's number or call her now at 877-214-4935. That's 877-214-4935. Or you can fill out a contact form at kbrightradio.com slash coverlaw. Stephanie Cover, she knows the other side. Welcome back to the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. Good News Friday edition of the Bottom Line and Good News Friday is also on St. Patrick's Day. So here we are and glad to have you along. Oz Hillman is my guest here on the program and we are talking about his brand new book, Birdies, Bogeys and Life Lessons from the Game of Golf. It's a collection of 52 devotions that you could read one each week for an entire year and it will help you not only improve your golf game, but you can live with purpose on and off the court or off the course, rather, I should say. Sorry, tennis reference. Uh, we've got three copies of the book to give away, and Crystal's standing by to take your calls. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278. 800 is the number to get you through to the bottom line. Again, three copies of this outstanding book by Oz Hillman. Birdies, Bogeys, and Life Lessons from the Game of Golf. 52 devotions in all. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278 is the number to get you through to the bottom line. Of course, you, you know, life is not about getting a hole-in-one every time you swing the, the at the tee, but the reality is that we in the body of Christ are constantly learning, constantly growing, constantly being improved upon in our efforts to uh, be more Christ-like and God-centered. And uh, this book by Oz Hillman, from a guy who is a, we're talking scratch golfer here. This guy's a wonderful golfer. Um, Oz shares some great stories and anecdotes and other uh, stories as well in the book, Birdies, Bogeys, and Life Lessons from the Game of Golf. 800-227-5278 is the number to get you through to the bottom line. I'll continue my conversation with author Oz Hillman coming up next as the bottom line continues. Oz Hillman is my guest today here on The Bottom Line. I'm Roger Marsh. His new book is called Birdies, Bogeys, and Life Lessons from the Game of Golf. We've got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Oz, before the break, you were talking about how you used to caddy for your dad before he gave you a few lessons. And next thing you know, you turned out to be quite a prodigy. Um, and, and that five bucks for caddying uh, each round, I think, is really, it, it shows a lot of, uh, well, little business acumen on your part. I re heard stories of my dad caddying when he was a young boy and only getting about a dollar uh, for, it must have been a different part of the country or something. But I'll tell you what. <laughs> 
he took two golf lessons and said, this is not for me. Absolutely not for me. It's not in my temperament. It's just not the way. Golf is kind of a frustrating game, is it not? And yet you draw a lot in this 52 devotionals. You draw a lot of biblical parallels from frustrations on the golf course, successes on the golf course, to the way our spiritual life works. Why, why do you think that is? Well, golf has a lot of great life lessons. There's so much you can gain from I'm just grateful I've had the ability to play the game, and even at my age today, being able to play at a single-digit handicap, mm. and uh, I just uh, appreciate the game. Uh, your expectations and the the reason you play the game changes as you get older, but it's still a wonderful game to be outside, to be with other men, and just to in, enjoy their company and still have competition. So it's a, it's a wonderful game from that perspective, and there are just a lot of analogies in golf that can be applied to the scriptures. What are some of your favorites, or maybe is there one that stands out that you feature in the book? Well, I, you know, one of them is uh, called Intimidation. In week seven, I talk about, you know, Satan's always trying to intimidate believers. Right. And in John 10, 10, it says Satan wants to steal, kill, and destroy from our life. He's really the great intimidator. And uh, when I was in college, I made it through. The, in order to qualify for the U.S. Open, you have to go through a grueling process. The first re regional qualifying is 36 holes. Mm -hmm. And then if you qualify in the regional, you go to, uh, I'm sorry, local qualifying. If you qualify in the local qualifying, you go to the regional. I made it through the local qualifier, and the regional was going to be in Charlotte, North Carolina, where the tour pros would be qualifying. Mm. And so I had to qualify uh, with them. And so I, uh, my, my, the person I played with was was Dewitt Weaver, who was a tour player at the time. And as I got on the first tee, I noticed that someone was standing about two feet from me. I, I just looked down and I saw their feet. That's all mm -hmm. I saw. And then I looked up and there was Sam Sneed crossed oh his hands and, uh -huh. and uh, arms just staring at me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and of course, <laughs> Sam Sneed was known for intimidating people. Oh, yeah. And, uh, oh, yeah. Ga gamesmanship, you know. Uh -huh. But to do it to a college kid, that's pretty that's pretty brutal. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I got up and I went ahead and hit it down the fairway. But uh, it's those kinds of things that we I, I share a lot of stories of golf. And then what's the analogy to what the scriptures say? And and so there's a lot of that. And uh, so I think it's a great book for uh, people who know golfers. You know, golfers mm -hmm. are mm -hmm. can be a one-track mind group, yeah. and yeah. Uh, sometimes it's hard to reach them on a spiritual level. And this book is a great book for that. You know, if you know a golfer or you have a business or just uh, want to give somebody a gift that has a spiritual tone to it but is an avid golfer, this, this really is a great one for that. Well, the book is called Birdies, Bogies, and Life Lessons from the Game of Golf by Oz Hillman, who's my guest today here on The Bottom Line. We do have it linked up at thebottomlineshow.com, so if you want to check that out and uh, see about uh, making that uh, that investment in the life of someone you know, and especially, Oz, I, I get the sense in reading this that it, it, it's 
I'll say overtly Christian. I mean, obviously, you're not backing away from your faith, but it's also written in such a way that if somebody weren't a Christian, they could take a look at this and say, well, I'm a golfer. I mean, so I get it. And this guy obviously knows the game um, that you'll be able to, uh, you know, see some uh, some spiritual truths that are in there that might actually even, you know, kind of revitalize someone's faith. You know, somebody who maybe grew up in the church and fell away from it. And now they're 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 looking for answers, especially as the world is getting crazier and crazier every day. Well, that's true, you know, and uh, there's some wonderful stories in here. I I tell stories about a lot of the professional golfers that people would know today, and uh, it's just anecdotes about golf experiences, and, uh, you know, so I think it's an entertaining book. I've had several people say, they instead of taking 52 weeks they uh they read it in one sitting you know oh wow <laughs> they could they like to go from one to the next they couldn't put it down uh-huh oh that's good that's good oz hillman my guest today here on the bottom line the book is called birdies bogeys and life lessons from the game of golf we have a link for the book up at the bottom line show.com as you have ventured into the workplace, um, obviously had tremendous success there, but also maintained your your ministry footprint, as it were. Oz, talk about why it's important for us to not compartmentalize the two. I would imagine there are some guys, especially that you encounter, who are very, very strong, active Christians when they're dialed into their church, but when it comes to being at the workplace, being on the golf course, that type of stuff, it's almost like they leave it at home. You know, it stays in the bag and doesn't ever get played. Talk about why that's one of those uh, arrows in the quiver, or I guess clubs in the bag, that God really wants us yeah. to play, especially nowadays. Talk about that. Yeah, and that was something that uh, early on in my salvation experience, uh, later on, I began to recognize how uh, departmentalized many men and women in the marketplace were, that their faith life was not integrated in their work life. And God really ministered to me through Colossians 3.23 that says, whatever you do, do unto the Lord. It is the Lord Christ you are serving, and therein is your inheritance. So that verse kind of prompted me to begin to investigate the idea that we're not here just to do work and then separate faith activity, and we're not to segment our life but it's one. And so God wants to be glorified in every activity that we do, yeah. including our work life. In fact, the word work and worship come from the same Hebrew word, avodah. Mm. And so we see in the life of Jesus that he worked, you know, those 33 years on earth, he did a yeah. lot of work as a carpenter. He recruited 12 people from the workplace. He didn't recruit rabbis. He recruited people in mm -hmm. the workplace. Point. And he spent more of his time in the marketplace than any other time. And he didn't recruit people to go into the synagogue to get saved or healed. He did it in the marketplace. And so uh, I began to see that we weren't really looking through the right lens uh, to see uh, how uh, – all-encompassing, uh, Jesus saw uh, the world, and for us to see our work in the context of it being a spiritual thing, and we're to manifest God's power and presence in our work and calling. 
Amen. Amen to that. Well, that is a, uh, it's so important for us to understand the fact that we, I, I love the, 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 uh, uh, what you drew for us in terms of the fact that work and worship have the same root, you know, and, and it, that's, there's a reason for that. That's not something that's, you know, God's not, you know, bringing his hands in heaven going, wow, how did that happen? But I mean, it's obviously very intentional. And thank you for showing us that something that would often for some people is a, an exercise of leisure and recreation can be very intentional and very worshipful, that being the, playing the game of golf. Oz Hillman has been my guest today here on The Bottom Line. The new book is called Birdies, Bogeys, and Life Lessons from the Game of Golf. We have a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Oz, thank you so much for being with us, for the work that you've done. I know it was a labor of love, but still, it does take a lot of time. Thanks for being with us today here on The Bottom Line. Thank you, Roger. Really enjoyed it. Well, what a delightful conversation. And uh, yeah, I think I may actually have to pick up a pair of golf or a set of golf clubs and uh, give this a shot once again. Thanks to Oz Hillman, my guest today here on the program. The brand new book is called Birdies, Bogeys, and Life Lessons from the Game of Golf. 52 devotions in all. It's a really cool looking book. And uh, it's also a helpful one as well. Uh, the link is up at thebottomlineshow.com. And we've got not one, not two, but three copies of this book to give away. It's kind of like Everyone Wednesday, only it's on Friday. 800 uh, 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278 is the number to get you through to the bottom line. Again, Oz Hillman is the author of the book, uh, Birdies, Bogeys, and uh, more stories about life lessons learned from the game at golf. 800-227-5278 is the number to get you through to the bottom line and if you, when you call uh make sure you, uh, you know, thank crystal and Teresa or whoever else is answering the phone today for the uh, uh the great service that they provide for you here it is our privilege and pleasure to be able to be a service to you be a resource to you whether it be just if you're calling in for the free stuff or or the other uh, materials that we have available, be sure to check out our website, kbrightradio.com or 770KCBC, 1220KLDC. Or if it's just easier, you can find all that info at my website, which is rogermarsh.com. Okay, we had some good news earlier from the state of New York with regard to a pregnancy resource center that had uh, basically been forced or was being forced to uh, admit to their working ranks, the New York boss bill of 2019 made it virtually impossible for a pregnancy resource center to avoid hiring people who supported abortion and would recommend abortion over the other two options a woman has. As we continue, uh, another New York government agency is pulling out the checkbook. And this time, this is a case has been going on for about a decade and it involves adoption. How often do you hear this in the uh, angry humanist, crabby atheist crowd. You know, well, we have to have abortion because population is such a big deal, blah, 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 blah. Uh, quite seriously, go back to the Bottom Line show, our calendar from a week ago, Wednesday, I believe it was, and get my uh, uh, thoughts and the video uh, from former Australian Prime, Deputy Prime Minister John Anderson and Dr. Nicholas Eberhardt of the American Enterprise Institute. He's an expert on world growth patterns and he shared some numbers about population explosion that will just blow your mind with regard to this whole idea that we need abortion to somehow save the planet. 
At the same time, though, as believers, we do believe that the best options for a woman who has an unplanned pregnancy is either to rally the troops and find a way. You know, maybe there's a support system that she didn't know about that's within her grasp, and a group like Preborn can help you find that. Or release that child for adoption. Now, for every child who was adopted in the U.S., and I heard this stat a couple of years ago. I've not heard anyone refute it or update it, so I'm assuming it's the same. For every one family that is allowed to adopt a child in the United States, there are 37 others who have been vetted and are qualified and ready to adopt. The issue with getting children into adoptive homes has very little to do with the number of adoptive families. It has everything to do with government red tape. And quite frankly, Molek wants these babies sacrificed to him. I mean, I don't know how else to describe it, but the idea that there's some spiritual warfare going on here that is really leading so many abortionists and women who have these abortions to murder their preborn children in the womb. Just because it's legal doesn't make it right. There are thousands of couples, thousands of families, thousands of single people in the United States who would love to adopt your child. And those people come in all different shapes and sizes, colors and stripes, whatever you want, different backgrounds, and yes, even different sexual orientations. Now, I am not opposed to the concept of a child having two parents. I would prefer that it's mom and dad. I think that's the best for the child. I, it's the biblical way to go. But there are other same-sex couples that have adopted kids. And quite frankly, I know one couple in particular because their daughter is going to our church's school. And they seem to be, you know, really getting the most out of that education that they're getting at a Christian school. God will handle the details on the other. And the church and school have been very, very upfront about, you know, what the church and school will teach. But on the other side of this break, what happens when state authorities start to come into adoption agencies that are run by Christians or Catholics or people of faith and say, oh, wait a minute. Not only can you adopt to, you know, in these families that are Christian families, but you have to consider the LGBTQ community too, even if there are LGBTQ friendly adoption agencies around. Well, New York, one agency tried to take a Catholic organization to task and they got their hands slapped. Our friends at Alliance Defending Freedom have the update coming up next as the bottom line continues. You know, I'll never forget the moment I met my grandson, Isaac. It actually wasn't in the delivery room. That was the first time I held him. But the first time I actually met Isaac was when I went with his mother to her ultrasound appointment and the ultrasound technician showed us a picture of that eight-week-old baby in the womb. Uh, you know, I encourage you to contact Preborn right now and make a donation to provide that same experience for another family. Maybe there's someone in your family who's expecting a child right now. They've had the ultrasound. You've seen the picture. You've heard the heartbeat. And you think, wow, how can I bless someone else. Studies show that 83% of the women who go to a preborn clinic and see that ultrasound either choose to become mothers and raise the children on their own or release the child for adoption. It cuts the risk of it cuts the rate of abortion dramatically. But your donations are necessary right now to get more ultrasound machines into preborn health clinics. Give a gift online when you go to kbrightradio.com and click the banner that says preborn. Cute little baby there wrapped up in a blanket. Or give a gift over the phone. 
833-850-BABY. 833-850-BABY. That's 833-850-2229. Call Preborn, make a donation. Every ultrasound machine could do 250 ultrasounds per year. So give a gift right now. My thanks again to Oz Hillman for joining me today here on The Bottom Line. Uh, last half hour, we had a great conversation about his brand new book called Birdies, Bogies, and Life Lessons from the Game of Golf, a collection of 52 devotions that's up at thebottomlineshow.com. We have three copies of this book to give away, and Crystal is taking your calls right now. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278 is the number to get you through to the bottom line. Okay. Um, interesting. I, I think this is interesting. Um, there are adoption agencies that adopt into Christian families. There are adoption agencies that focus on the Jewish faith. There are adoption agencies that cater to the LGBTQ crowd. Now, when it comes to kids that have been orphaned and are in child protective services for whatever reason, I would love to see every child adopted into a family. For me, a family is a husband and a wife, mom and dad, preferably one that has biological kids too, along with the adopted kids. But if they want to adopt as many, my colleague, Neil Boron, uh, one of his sisters is the mother of, let's see, 14 kids. And if I remember correctly, at least nine of those kids are adopted. That's, that's pretty remarkable. It is no secret. And I mentioned before the break, there is a couple, a couple of guys who uh, actually placed their daughter in my former church's Christian school. Uh, She's been, there as part of the uh, the student body for, I want to say, five or six years. Uh, and the school had a heart-to-heart with these guys and said, look, here's the deal. You know, we want every child to get a great education. We'd love to have your daughter here. Here's what we teach about sexuality, marriage, this, that, and the other thing. As long as you are okay with the fact that this is the way we will never, you know, point your daughter out to be a bad example or something like that. But this is what we teach. And both of the guys said, do it. This is what we want. And so uh, the, their little girl's been going there ever since she was in pre-kindergarten. And, you know, it's, it's pretty remarkable. So lest we get a little too preachy, I'm not condoning same-sex, quote-unquote, marriage at all. But lest we get too preachy, my one anecdotal experience with a couple that has adopted a child has been good. Now we've read stories about, you know, couples that have, it's just been horrible. It's just been a nightmare. And we would be remiss if we didn't acknowledge the fact that that happens. But there are lousy biological heterosexual parents, too, even in the church. So let's put that part of the argument aside. Back in 2013, the New York State Office of Children and Family Services went after a faith-based organization called New Hope Family Services. New Hope is a private religious ministry. They do not accept any government funding whatsoever. They are a faith-guided organization that does not coerce anyone to become Christian, and they don't interfere with any other adoption providers who have different beliefs. In other words, they say, look, if you come to New Hope, we will place you in a family of a Christian mom and dad. That's what we do. Now, there are other agencies that adopt to other couples, and New Hope says, you do you. Of course, back in 2013, New York passed a law that says you cannot discriminate against any applicants based on sexual orientation or marital status. Now, I'm not a big fan of single people adopting only because it's twice the work and it's really challenging. But I know a lot of single parents who adopted and they're great parents. So, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm saying it's not for me. 
But when it comes to sexual orientation, that's a whole different ballgame. It's interesting because the, the, the district court initially ruled against New Hope. But then, remember that Second Circuit Court of Appeals that I told you about in the earlier segment? The three-judge panel there reviewed the lawsuit and they said, no, you got to go back and take a look at this once again. This was a 2018 Office of Child and Family Services uh, from the state of New York had done an audit and they conducted or they concluded that New Hope was actually violating the 2013 law. So basically, here's what happened. Um, U.S. District Court Judge May D'Agostino granted New Hope a preliminary injunction against the state law. Basically, they said that the, uh, the, the reason Judge D'Agostino said that they, she was writing the case was that the OCFS interpretation of that law, quote, demonstrates some animosity toward particular religious beliefs. Continuing reading the, uh, the uh, opinion here, while not all of the evidence discussed weighs in favor of finding hostility when viewed individually, the totality of the evidence indicates that Section 421.3-D, as promulgated and enforced by OCFS, is not neutral and appears to be based on some hostility toward New Hope's religious beliefs. The temporary order was issued in October 2020, and then last September, the judge issued a permanent restraining order, stopping the state from compelling New Hope, quote, to process applications from or place children for adoption with same-sex couples or unmarried cohabitating couples, and insofar as it would prevent New Hope from referring such couples to other agencies. Full stop. So the judge said in her decision, here's the deal. They're a Christian organization. They don't like to place kids in homes where mom and dad aren't married. The two people are there. They don't like to put them in same-sex places. And they will refer to other agencies. I mean, they, they don't have a problem with that. So basically, if you issue this ruling against them, it'll keep them from being in business. So what makes this case so interesting to me is what we'll talk about on the other side of this break as this Good News Friday edition of The Bottom Line continues in a moment. Welcome back to this Good News Friday edition of The Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. More good news out of the Second uh, Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, Judge May D'Agostino, uh, back in August, October 2020, rather, granted a preliminary injunction against uh, New York State law that banned discrimination against adoption service applicants based on sexual orientation or marital status. New Hope uh, Adoption Agency is a Christian group. They like to place kids in Christian families. They have the right to do that since there are scads of other adoption agencies that can place kids with single-parent families, same-sex couples, etc., etc. This past September, the order became permanent. And now a final ruling has been handed down and the New York Office of Children and Family Services must pay New Hope $250,000 in legal fees to finally settle the case. A quarter of a million dollars in legal fees. Our friends at Alliance Defending Freedom, by the way, were the ones who handled this case for New Hope and they did so pro bono. Roger Brooks is senior counsel with ADF. And they say, look, here's the deal. New Hope is a private religious ministry. They don't take government money, they don't coerce anyone, and they don't interfere with other adoption agencies who have different beliefs about family and the best interests of children. On behalf of the children waiting to be adopted 
and the prospective parents partnering with New Hope to provide loving and stable homes. Alliance Defending Freedom is pleased to favorably settle this case and ensure that the organization can continue in its vital service to the Syracuse community. And that $250,000 then, New Hope didn't have to pay ADF a penny. They were able to recover some fees here, which is good, but your and my donations make this a reality. Um, go to kbrightradio.com, click on the banner for Alliance Defending Freedom, or go to crawfordmediagroup.net. By the way, the ruling in September 2022 that made this a permanent injunction, this came a year after the U.S. Supreme Court, you remember this one, unanimously ruled that Philadelphia violated a law by excluding a Catholic charity from its foster program because they did not want to place children with same-sex couples. Unanimous in the Supreme Court. By the way, in case you're wondering, the last ruling we had against uh, the, the New York law that was going against a Christian uh, pregnancy resource center, that was a Trump appointee, the judge who wrote the case. U.S. District Court Judge May D'Agostino was appointed by President Trump's predecessor. Yeah, President Obama. Lest we think that this is a, uh, all lefties love abortion and they hate you know, they love same-sex this and this, that, and the other thing. Here's a judge who ruled constitutionally and fairly, and God bless her for doing so. Hey, you just got a few moments left to get your call in to get in on the giveaway. We've got three copies of Oz Hillman's book, Birdies, Bogeys, and Life Lessons from the Game of Golf, 52 devotions in all. Makes a great gift. <laughs> I sound like a carnival barker. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278 is the number to get you through to the bottom line. For our KCBC crowd, enjoy the rest of your day. Uh, Rabbi Schneider and Discovering the Jewish Jesus coming up next. For those who remain on the network, a special conversation with Benjamin Sisney. He's senior counsel uh, for litigation at the D.C. office of the American Center for Law and Justice. Two big victories for us to celebrate in the pro-life community and the freedom of speech community as it pertains to religious liberty. Ben and I are going to talk that talk about that coming up next as the bottom line continues. Well, a special guest joining me today here on this Good News Friday edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. Oftentimes you hear me blathering on about some of the stories and events that are happening that are really are good news. But we have some wonderful news from our friends at the American Center for Law and Justice, the ACLJ, of course, behind the Seculo Live program that you hear on all of our Bottom Line Show affiliates. And it's involving a follow-up, including a bunch of students from a Christian school who were hassled for basically being pro-life for wearing Make America Great type of material. They were just basically showing their, their patriotism. And it happened not once, but twice. And the American Center for Law and Justice is announcing victory for their clients in these two different lawsuits. Uh, ben Sisti is with me today here on The Bottom Line. He is a, uh, Benjamin Sisti is a senior counsel for litigation and public policy at the Washington, D.C. office of the American Center for Law and Justice. And if you're watching on myhopenow.com, you see uh, Ben Sisti sitting in his office, highly decorated uh, with all the plaques on the wall behind you there, Ben Sisney. Welcome to the Bottom Line Show today. Thank you so much for having me. It is an honor to be on your show. Well, we likewise, the, the feeling is definitely mutual, and we love what the American Center for Law and Justice does. There are two different cases. They kind of sound very similar. And Ben, I was wondering if you could just kind of give us a 35,000-foot overview here of what happened when some bunch of pro-life Christian students tried to visit a couple of museums and wound up getting kicked out for being pro-life. Is that what happened? 
That's exactly what happened. Um, and, and it's shocking in a way. And of course, in a way, it's not shocking in the world we live in today of right. censorship and, you know, trying to silence the opposing view instead of open debate. And, and you know, free speech is under attack in a way that I, I have not seen before in my career. And uh, uh, so basically what happened here, and you're right, there's two lawsuits. Um, it, it's two different museums, two different sets of plaintiffs that that um, are our clients, uh, very similar occurrence, a strikingly similar occurrence, actually. And and one was at the National Archives um, there here in D.C., just down the street. The other is um, at the Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum. Um, that's the one where we just most recently entered an agreed order that we'd been negotiating. Uh, but basically, the underlying set of facts are various groups of students and families and and, and such are in town here in DC for the, the Right to Life, the National Right mm -hmm. to Life March. Um, and um, uh, it's quite a big event. It's always, you know, the attendance is significant. I you know, I can see it outside my window. I, I, it's always underreported in national media. Um, of course. But they, so they're, they're here from all over the place. This one group is here from Greenville, South Carolina and um, from a, a Christian school there, um, um, a Catholic school. Um, and they are in town. They're engaging in, you know, the the event and the the um, uh, of of being pro life, expressing their views, the freedoms and liberties of being an American and being able to come and do something like that. Also, you're in the nation's capital. You know, see the see the thing. You know, experience the National Mall, the museums, that that whole thing. And and so they're here, and, and they go in. This particular group goes into the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum and are harassed, targeted, um, and basically uh, really threatened um, with and, and made to leave. Um, why, I'm curious, Ben, Sissy, why would they be made to leave? I mean, it's a bunch of kids. I'm assuming they were supervised, you know, parents or teachers or something like that with them. Were they chanting? Were they loud and obnoxious? I mean, what were they doing? Great. They got them kicked out. No, no, great question, because that, that's something that comes to mind when you hear, you know, that, that introduction. They were they were 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 entirely uh, peaceful, respectful, quiet, um, you know, obedient. They the, the they were not protesting, right? The 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 museums are trying to describe this as some kind of protest thing, and mm -hmm. and it, it wasn't. You know what you know what they were doing, Roger? They were wearing hats and shirts that had a pro life message. Uh, the the hat for this particular group, the beanie, blue beanie. See it on our website, rosary. Uh, the name of their school, pro-life. That's it. Rosary wow. pro-life. That's what it says on the hat. Uh, you wow. know, there was a t-shirt or or something to the effect uh, between the two different museums and different groups. I'm the pro-life generation or, you know, mm -hmm. I'm pro-life. That's it. No, it. you know, I, I don't mean to, uh, no gruesome pictures, right? No, mm -hmm. no, 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 no verbal uh, uh, protest of any type. It was just for wearing those clothing items as they went into the, into the museums, the guards targeted them, harassed them, used profanity. And some of my clients are minors, by the way, mm. use, use significant profanity against them, made them leave, threatened, you know, rubbing their hands and you're going to make my day and all that kind of stuff. Mm. And, and incredible. These are like high school students. Right. You know, in right. Washington, D.C. for their big time to, to come see the nation's oh. capital and, and do this. And 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 that's that's what happens to them here. And I'm sorry to say it to make it political, but 
in 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 President Joe Biden's administration. That's what happens to kids who who dare to wear something in the nation's capital in a federal you know federal entity, the National Archives. I mean these. The, these are federal entities. That's why the mm -hmm. First Amendment right. applies, by the way, which was right. the basis of our lawsuit. Mm. Interesting. Ben Sisney is with me today here on The Bottom Line. He is Senior Counsel for Litigation and Public Policy at the Washington, D.C. Office of the American Center for Law and Justice. We've got a link for this press release up at thebottomlineshow.com, which is incredible, because here are a group of uh, cr Christian school students are from a Catholic school in Greenville, South Carolina. The school's called Rosary. And so as Ben was just describing, there, some kids, I mean, they're wearing beanies. It's January in Washington, D.C. Of course, they're wearing beanies or something to keep their heads warm. Some of them had hats, some had T-shirts, had the name of the school and just the words pro-life. And all of a sudden they start getting harassed. I mean, I can understand. I mean, two, I'm sure there are kids who go through there and there's they're wearing T-shirts that have a picture of Chagall Guevara wrapped in an American flag that's on fire, smoking a joint. And they get to go in because that's no problem with that. But if they had, as you were describing, if they had, you know, had abortion as murder or, you know, some bloody fetus type sign or something like that, and they were chanting and being disruptive, we would expect them to say, hey, look, you're being disruptive. This isn't right. But the fact that they're wearing their school name, school logo, and just the words pro-life got them hassled, sworn at. I mean, the, uh, just uh, <laughs> trying to try to imagine any other scenario where this would possibly be acceptable. Now, you mentioned you've entered into an agreement here with uh, with the Smithsonian, and, and there's another lawsuit as well. Uh, give us kind of an update as to where those are, what the status okay, is. Okay, so so absolutely. So without going too far into the weeds, um, basically what happens is you file a lawsuit, and, and a lot of times in cases where First Amendment activity, expressive activity is an issue, and there's some kind of government um, restriction or, or something that's uh, infringing that First Amendment activity, um, it, often in these cases we, we we see and we've done many times you seek a, a what we call a, a temporary restraining order a TRO uh, or a preliminary injunction depending on the facts of the case and circumstances um, and um, so um, the and, and then you get that if you succeed and you get that order um, uh, it, it sort of holds it, it, it prohibits whatever the you know the government action is that that's bad that's wrongful. Uh, uh, prohibits it during the pendency of the case or until there's a final order, right? Until, okay. until we get to the end, right? And um, so it, it was um, it, it was a, a tremendous result to be able to go and file these lawsuits against the federal government and um, uh, negotiate with uh, with their counsel, the Department of Justice attorneys. Um, to obtain this preliminary injunction uh, by agreement, um, I. I mean, I, I don't know how to compare it in a sense of like rareness or, or but but to be able to negotiate something like that um, this early on, and, and they basically admit that what happened was wrong. You know, they say it in their words, but and they've of course they've apologized for it, and that wasn't enough for us because apologies are not enforceable court orders, um, mm -hmm. and 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 we needed to get an enforceable court order to make sure this doesn't happen to them. And really, I, th I think it, it'll have kind of a a, sh uh, uh, a ripple effect of also making sure they're not going to do something like that to somebody else either, right. because they know that, you know, that we're, we're holding them accountable. So to be able to get that kind of an order, it shows they know what they did was wrong, and they wanted to agree to it quickly. Um, part of the deal is we're going to go to mediation. We're in that process too. We're going to see if we can resolve it. We'll we'll negotiate in good faith and and see if we can resolve this for our clients and get a final order, uh, which which would be great. But 
before we are able to do that, we're going to need some more information. Um, just just quickly, if I may, Roger. Yes. We have two cases, National Archives, Smithsonian, National Air and Space Museum. We've had communications with there. There's two other incidents floating out there. There's one that 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 occurred at the Capitol Visitor Center, same day, same types of people who were targeted. Uh, and um, also one uh, just uh, uh, by the the Washington Monument there on the mall outside. Mm -hmm. So we've, we've got four incidents, two of which we've sued on, two, two more that we're looking at, of very similar conduct that happened on the same day, the day that all of the, the pro-life folks from around the country are in town, you know, the same kind of activity, the government actors trying to harass them and shut them down, censor them. And I, I'm just, I'm not going to accept that it, it's a coincidence. There was some kind of marching order. There was some kind of directive or guidance, phone call, email, something. There was a quarterback here, and we've got to find out who that is. Well, this is encouraging news. I don't want to say it's wonderful news, but it's encouraging news from Ben Sisney, uh, Senior Counsel for Litigation and uh, Public Policy at the American Center for Law and Justice's Washington, D.C. office. He also serves as the ACLJ's Director of Freedom of Information Act Practice and as a, a practicing lawyer in Oklahoma for a number of years after graduating from Regent University Law School. We're grateful to have Ben with his expertise. Speaking into these two cases, one involving the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum and also the National Archive. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to find out what kind of uh, satisfaction, if you will, what kind of justice awaits for these students who have gotten a preliminary victory in their case against these two national entities. We'll talk about that coming up next as the bottom line continues. You know, I'll never forget the moment I met my grandson, Isaac. It actually wasn't in the delivery room. That was the first time I held him. But the first time I actually met Isaac was when I went with his mother to her ultrasound appointment, and the ultrasound technician showed us a picture of that eight-week-old baby in the womb. Uh, you know, I encourage you to contact Preborn right now and make a donation to provide that same experience for another family. Maybe there's someone in your family who's expecting a child right now. They've had the ultrasound. You've seen the picture. You've heard the heartbeat, and you think, wow, how can I bless someone else? Studies show that 83% of the women who go to a preborn clinic and see that ultrasound either choose to become mothers and raise the children on their own or release the child for adoption. It cuts the risk of, it cuts the rate of abortion dramatically. But your donations are necessary right now to get more ultrasound machines into preborn health clinics. Give a gift online when you go to kbrightradio.com and click the banner that says preborn. Cute little baby there wrapped up in a blanket. Or give a gift over the phone. 833-850-BABY, 833-850-BABY, that's 833-850-2229. Call Preborn, make a donation. Every ultrasound machine could do 250 ultrasounds per year, so give a gift right now. Ben Sisney is my guest today here on The Bottom Line on this Good News Friday edition of the program. Ben is Senior Counsel for Litigation and Public Policy at the Washington, D.C. Office of the American Center for Law and Justice. And we've been talking about these cases that ACLJ is uh, two lawsuits right now pending and that they're in mediation, which is remarkable. One against the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum. That's where the pro-life kids showed up wearing beanies and T-shirts that had rosary, the name of their school, and then the words pro-life on them. That was what warranted, apparently, and I'm saying that in air quotes for our myhopenow.com viewers. Um, that's what warranted the harassment and then the National Archives and the Washington Mall. And it's just, it's it's amazing to see these happen. I mean, Ben, I don't want to boil this down to really simple terms, but this almost seems like a speed trap, if you will. I mean, with regard to 
you know, those who are on alert, those who could make arrests, those who could show that they were, you know, really, quote unquote, enforcing the law, because here come all the pro-life kids and what are they going to do? You know, I mean, they're, they're not going to push back. They're not going to hassle. I think it's important. Everything I'm hearing you say doesn't sound vindictive in the sense that you're trying to draw attention to, you know, trying to make a mountain out of a molehill here. What you really have is legitimate first legitimate uh, First Amendment right cases where freedom of speech has been denied. And you've got government agencies, government actors, if you will, who've acknowledged it. And now I appreciate the fact, help us understand what it means. You know, we saw public apologies in the press. Okay, yeah, they shouldn't have done that. We've talked to the employees, yakety schmackety, you know, that type of thing. But there are some legal remedies that are really important to get that ACLJ is fighting for. Kind of boil those down for us, if you would. Sure. So um, uh, the first step in the process is the preliminary injunction that we we just had entered in both cases. Um, and and that will that will cover it until the final order. The final order that we'll be seeking either by, you know, through me mediation or, or, you know, in front, in front of the court is um, uh, first is declaratory relief, a declaratory judgment with, where, where there's a statute that authorizes the federal court to say, you know, what this happened, this violates the law, this violates the constitution, it's a declaratory judgment. And um, uh, then there is injunctive relief, you can get a permanent injunction, like we have a preliminary one in place now. Mm -hmm. Seek a, uh, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll obtain a, a permanent injunction that will that will cover for all time and um, um, prohibiting the that kind of violation from happening again. Um, there are damages at issue. I mean, you sue the federal government. There's some limitations and some sovereign immunity issues that govern damages. Um, but there are some exceptions. One of them is is Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which is one yes. of our counts, um, because uh, just for example, in this case. The, the students were not just obviously pro-life and targeted for that, but rosary is a well-understood religious term mm -hmm. and, yes. and, and on its face is, is religious. And um, uh, so there, there's damages available um, through through that particular statutory uh, statutory uh, mechanism. Um, so we'll be pursuing that as well. But but at the end of the day, um, protecting the First Amendment, we can't undo what. What, what was done that that's right. sort of the thing about violations of the law like this that you we can't undo it there's nothing that makes the student or one of these students whole for for the injury that happened here uh but we can do everything in our power in the legal system to make sure it doesn't happen again and to send a message uh to the other agencies and to this administration that you can't do that and and if you do we will hold you accountable under the law I think that's excellent to point out, and I appreciate the fact that the American Center for Law and Justice operates under a model that says, hey, look, we're going to take this case on, and we rely on the donations of people who listen to Secular Live or or, or just support ACLJ with their tax-deductible donations to make this type of uh, litigation possible. I mean, that, that kind of fuels the engine, if you will, for Ben Sisney and his team to do the work that they need to do, and I think that it's huge. Something else that kind of came up as we you were describing this, Ben Sisney, the case involving the, the kids from South Carolina, walking through the, the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum, getting hassled because they're wearing beanies and t-shirts and stuff like that that mentioned the name of their school, and the words pro-life, and that's it. But then the fact that they were actually roughed up, asked to leave, you know, threatened with legal action, this type of stuff. Oftentimes on the progressive side of the equation, 
someone makes a statement, you know, to a crowd or post something on social media, and all of a sudden, here come the lawyers saying, I was hurt, I was damaged, et cetera, et cetera. In this case, the students, their chaperones, the parents, teachers who were all with them actually did endure some kind of physical trauma, as it were. I mean, they were, weren't they forcibly removed, or at least they were detained on site? I mean, this this is really actionable as opposed to just reactionable, it sounds yeah, like. Yeah, it, it threatened physical um, uh, contact. And, you know, it, several described you know, a guard rubbing his hands, you're going to make my day, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, and that kind of thing. Uh, escorting them out under, you know, and you mentioned earlier and you're spot on, you know, when, if you walk into a place like that and it's already, I don't, intimidating is not the word, but if you walk in any of these federal buildings and you go through security and, mm -hmm. you know, you're, you're kind of on your best behavior. Yeah, it's pretty imposing. Should, yeah, you sure. should be. I mean, <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I get it. Uh, but um, so you walk in and then all of a sudden, let's say uh, federal agents um, with, you know, patch, uh, 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 you know, special police, I think some of the, you know, federal police and these different sort of, you know, and, and they have the weight of the law behind them, the image and, 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 and the whole, you know, um, that what, what you see there in that, in this, in this scenario and uh, approach you and confront you and swearing at you, mm. F words, you know, this and that. And, you know, you're not allowed, you better take that off or you're going to make my day and, 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 you know, escorting them to the door, kicking them out, even telling them they had to take their, their pro-life stuff on as they were uh, off, as they were leaving the facility. I, I mean, what do you, like you mentioned, what are you going to do? You going, what are you going to, you, no, they, they, it, you're going to abide by, I mean, you don't want to go to jail. You don't want to, to be fine. You don't, or you just don't want a problem. I mean, you're just there to see the museum. Exactly. And, exactly. And, yeah. and you're wearing you're wearing a shirt there. There were uh, described to us by our clients. There were people wearing all kinds of, you know, politically charged um, messages on, on shirts and things for sale in the gift shop and all. But only their message is not allowed. See, that's right. the problem. Only theirs was the one that's not OK. And, and I'm, I'm sorry, First Amendment doesn't allow that. This right. is a federal entity. The First Amendment does not allow that. And it happened. I, we can't undo it. But for our client's sake and for for others around the country, we can do everything we, we can within our power to make sure it doesn't happen again. This, this is a case, if, if, if I may, Roger, just real quick, Jay and yeah. Jordan, they, you know, the First Amendment is at the core of, of what the ACLJ does. And, yeah. and, and also, so is pro-life expression, religious liberty and pro-life message and expressive activity. This goes way back. I mean, this this is one of Jay's earliest, you know, uh, forays into the law, and 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 um, so, and then there was a period of time where you didn't see this kind of ridiculousness happen because it was so obviously wrong, and the mm -hmm. jurisprudence was so clear, and now it's happening again, and, and so here we are again. The ACLJ and, and Jay Seculo and and Jordan and you know their leadership. We're fighting back peacefully, legally fighting mm -hmm. back because that's what we can do in America. And you mentioned this, but it's so true. We get to do that because of our supporters. We're very grateful for that. Yes, aclj.org is up at the bottom line show.com in perpetuity, uh, largely because of the fact that Jay Seculo's radio broadcast is carried by our affiliates. But also when we get these updates and we get a chance to share with you and, and hear from some of the legal team that are fighting these fights, we encourage you to go to the bottom line show.com, aclj.org 
find out how you can support the American Center for Law and Justice in cases like the uh, Rosary Catholic School from Greenville, South Carolina, a group of students who went to the 50th annual March for Life, uh, that this was the first one where Roe versus Wade had actually been overturned. And so there was a lot to celebrate. And in visiting a national museum, got hassled, got threatened, got sworn at, and eventually escorted out of the museum simply for wearing the message that we are from Rosary High School and we are pro-life. I mean, just it's ridiculous, but uh, here we are in the world and praise the Lord. We have groups like the American Center for Law and Justice who are fighting the good fight on their behalf. Ben Sisney, Senior Counsel for Litigation and Public Policy at the ACLJ's Washington, D.C. office has been my guest. Ben, it's been great to spend time with you. Thank you so much for the comprehensive update. And thanks for being with us today here on The Bottom Line. My pleasure. Thank you. Likewise, Ben, it is a privilege to spend time with you and to have these conversations and have these dialogues keep up the great work. And of course, as I mentioned, aclj.org is where you can find more information on the American Center for Law and Justice. Some final thoughts to wrap up this Good News Friday edition of The Bottom Line show in just a moment as The Bottom Line continues. My thanks again to Ben Sisney, Senior Counsel for Litigation and Public Policy at the American Center for Law and Justice's Washington, D.C. office today here on The Bottom Line. We had a special Good News Friday edition of our conversation with the guys at ACLJ and Secular Live to talk about this incredible case. There are two cases that are pending. Actually, uh, Ben mentioned in our conversation, there are four actual cases that the ACLJ is looking into right now, and they all involve people of faith, going to visit national museums, archives, things of that nature, and just wanting to have a tour and then being hassled for the fact that, like in the case of the uh, uh, the uh, Rosary Catholic School in Greenville, South Carolina, you had a number of students who were there for the March for Life back in January, about 23rd, I believe. And afterwards, they went to the uh, the National, the Smithsonian Institution, actually, National Air and Space Museum. And they walked in wearing that some of the kids had beanies on, little blue knit caps, and they had the word rosary for their school and then pro-life on the logo or a T-shirt that said rosary pro-life because they were there at the March for Life. I mean, you'd imagine that if they were kids, I mean, I, I can't imagine, but I'm sure it does happen. Say kids from a Catholic school were passionately pro-abortion or pro-feminism or pro-communism or something like that. What if they had the name of the school that was obviously a Catholic school like Corpus Christi or something like that? And then, um, you know, pro-communism, you know, the, the Corpus Christi communists. I mean, it sounds ridiculous to say, but let's say they did that. Those kids could walk through the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum with their uh, Corpus Christi communism t-shirts on. Again, I, I want to calm everybody down. I don't think there's an organization like that. It's just for the example. And so they, they're walking around and they're taking selfies and, you know, doing the fun pictures and all that stuff. And what's the recourse? Nothing, because they. Well, I, I use the example. There's probably some kid wearing a Che Guevara shirt. Most kids don't know who he is. They just know he's cool on the shirt. Smoking a joint wrapped up in a burning American flag. And they, that would be totally fine because it's freedom of speech. But the First Amendment applies in these places because you're talking about the National Archives. You're talking about the Smithsonian. You're talking about places that are under the jurisdiction of the federal government. And the fact that you had a group of students and their parents and their chaperones literally walking around. They weren't singing songs. They weren't chanting. They didn't bring in big signs with pictures of aborted fetal tissue saying abortion is murder and stuff like that. They're literally, if you can imagine them walking around, arms folded, taking pictures. Ooh, wow, isn't this really cool? With their rosary pro-life shirts and hats on. And next thing you know, you have guards, security guards, surrounding them, swearing at them. Like Ben mentioned, the one guard who was literally rubbing his hands together and said, ooh, you're going to make my day. Like, look, we're going to throw you out and we're going to get promotions and et cetera, et cetera. And look what happened. 
So the temporary restraining order was put in place, and immediately the Smithsonian apologized, National Archives apologized, but there's a legal remediation for this. There's a remedy that has to be uh, you know, permanent injunctions and things of that nature, and that's where the ACLJ is doing the good work. So we as Christians, could, on this Good News Friday, you can celebrate these two victories right now. They're preliminary in nature, but they're, they're victories nonetheless. And coupled with the conversation I had with Pastor Jeremy McGarity yesterday from Skyline Church about how he took the message of how does the church respond when your kids are in public school and there's a mandatory drag assembly uh, that happens on the campus, the kids have to go and the parents can't be notified about it. What recourse do we have? Well, we can get angry and we can complain to our Christian friends and we can pray and you know beat ourselves in the chest. But when we have a legal remedy, too, we have a biblical obligation, I believe, to do two things. First of all, speak the truth in love with gentleness and respect. I mean, when people are dealing with gender dysphoria and things like that, megaphones and bullhorns and stuff like that aren't nearly as effective as a, hey, wow, that's one. I mean, my goodness, I, I can't imagine what that's like to go through. Empathy. But then, inside the church especially, there has to be exhortation. There has to be us stepping up and saying, this is what, let's go to God's word. What does the scripture say about this and how we should respond? That's part of our stewardship of citizenship that is so essential for us, especially in these last days, to live out. Share the good news. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Do so truthfully, compassionately, and respectfully. That's the bottom line.